0: The doctrine of justification and what justification accomplishes in us. And in particular, what we're we're remembering is that every human being without exception is guilty of sin, that we were under sin, uh, the Scriptures say. Now the next chapter, we begin to deal with the power or the corruption of sin. But right now we're still dealing with the guilt, the, the objective legal guilt before God that earns for us condemnation before God. The the idea, according to Paul, at the end of chapter 3, is that there's enough evidence against us that no one will look and say, God, this isn't fair. No one will be there giving excuses or or, or making pleas. Everyone will stand before God with their mouths shut, no excuses, and acknowledge that the judgment that they receive is justice. The answer to our condemnation, the answer to our guilt in the Bible is justification. The act of God's grace by which He pardons us of our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed or credited or given to us and received by faith alone. That's the definition of justification in the Westminster Shorter Catechism you want to look it up, you can find it there. It's even in the Trinity Hymnals in the back. That's question 33 in that one if you want to see it later. But that doctrine, justification, being pardoned of sin and accepted as righteous because of what Christ has done for us and the effect that has in our lives, that's what this passage is about. And I will tell you up front, this passage is probably theologically the most compact and dense theology of any passage in the Scripture I've ever taught. I hope to be able to unpack it with you and to see what it means that we are justified, what it means that we have Christ as Savior, and, and, and how we can think about that, and, and how that can give us hope and life today. Before we read the Scriptures, let's pray together that God would bless the time we spend in His Word. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we acknowledge our need of You, we know the Scriptures bring us the message of Christ and what He has done and so we want to come through the Scriptures by your Spirit to know the Lord Jesus and to enjoy Him. And our desire today is that we would become less confident in our own self-saving abilities. In fact, that we could repent of that and reject it altogether. And our desire is that you would make us more confident in what Christ has done more faithful and trusting in Him. We pray that You would show us how great our Savior is. And may we have the courage to trust in Him fully. We ask for this blessing and we pray for it all in His name. Amen. Romans 5, verse 12. This is God's Word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. for The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, The many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's Word. It's completely true. And it is utterly trustworthy. Why is it that some will detonate bombs implanted with shrapnel with nails and ball bearings with the intention to create terror and to cause suffering and injury while in the same crowd others will run toward the explosions so they could be first ones there to help those who were hurt how do you get both things from the same crowd well The Bible's answer to that question is one of the reasons I find Christianity so convincing. It tells you the reason why you have both of those things is our common connection to Adam, the first man. Another question I want to ask is how is it possible that people who have done evil... And the truth is, that applies to everyone. Even those who ran toward the explosions had done evil. Some of them likely ran to the explosions because they were trying to make up for evil they had done. Why is it, how is it that people who have done evil can ever be restored to a right relationship to God? Most religions will answer the question, start doing good and do enough good to outweigh the bad and you'll be okay. Christianity says it's not that. It's your relationship to Jesus. And that answer is the second thing that is so convincing to me about Christianity. Your relationship to Adam explains your experience in the world. Your relationship to Jesus explains how you can be restored to God. That's what this passage is about. And I want you to see it. The The passage really starts thinking about... To the Garden of Eden before there was sin. Adam was there, and God had made Adam upright, perfectly holy, perfect relationship with God. It says he walked with God in the cool of the day. Everything was right. And God had given Adam just two commands be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. One command. Second command. There's a tree in the middle of the garden, it's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. Everything else is yours. With those two commands, in the perfect setting, we get this, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. In a sentence, he's summing up all that happened in Genesis 3. Adam did not obey God. Adam went to that tree, the one thing he was forbidden, and he took the fruit and he ate it. And the Bible says sin came into the world through him and death through sin. God had said to Adam, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. There was no trajectory toward mortality for humans. Adam and Eve weren't dying as you and I are, as every person who's lived since them, They weren't dying till they took that forbidden fruit and the immediate impact is a day was set for their death. They would die now and everyone who came after them, look what it says next. And so death spread to all men. So Adam brought sin into the world and with the sin came death and then not just to himself but to all men the same death, the same infection, the same disease spread to every person. Why? Because all sinned. Now, when you read that, you might say, okay, so here's the effect. Adam sinned, brought death into the world, and everyone who's come after Adam, we followed his example. We've all sinned just like he did. The problem is, this is an odd verse. In fact, if I were going to say, you know, because Adam sinned and death came into the world, so death spread to all men because we all sin. That's the way I would say it. The reason we're going to die is we've all sinned. We all sin. It's the ongoing uh, sin of man that brings that keeps death in the world. But that's not what he said. He didn't say we all sin present tense. He said we all sinned past tense. Listen to what one commentator said about this the verb in verse 12 because all sinned is an aorist tense now a lot of you haven't been working about the tenses of verbs since you were in high school or or maybe the last time you were in uh, you know composition class in college and since then you're like Whew, let me help you through the grammar guys nice. aorist tense means a past perfect it's even more strong than the english perfect tense The aorist always points to a single past action. It says that the whole race, all of humanity, sinned in one single past action. To use a large collective noun, all, with such a specific verb tense is so awkward, it must have been deliberate. Now, let me... Help you do this. What he, what this commentator is saying is that the tense of the verb matters. It matters a lot to understand this passage. That this tense of the verb means one action that's already done, a single action, and everybody did that one thing. Okay? It's confusing. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. Now, let me prove to you first that that verb tenses matter. We were studying this recently in Sunday school. It's in Luke chapter twenty. The Sadducees come to Jesus and they say, we know of a woman who was married to seven brothers, one after the other, because of the law of the day. A brother who dies without an heir. His younger brother would marry the woman. And that's what happens. Seven brothers die. This woman eventually dies. And they anticipate the idea that this is going to create an awkward situation in the resurrection. And so they ask Jesus, because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, what's going to happen with her? Who is she going to be married to? Well, Jesus says, you don't understand. There's no marriage in, in the resurrection. But more significantly, you don't believe the Bible. Moses taught about the resurrection. When he recounted the story, his account of meeting God at the burning bush, he said that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you don't understand. That's the way he answered it. Now, here's what Moses said. Chapter Exodus 3, verse 6. And God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, Jesus says, you can learn about the resurrection from that verse. How? Well, if God had come to say that years ago, He was the God of the, of the forefathers of Moses, 400 years before, 500 years before. He would have said, I was the God of those men. I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so you can trust me. But he didn't say that. He said, I am right now the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The present tense says they're alive, and I'm their God right now, 400 years after Jacob's death. Well, the point is clear. The present tense of that verb mattered intensely. You can learn about the resurrection from the tense of a verb in Exodus 3 6. That's what Jesus was saying. And you can learn something about the tense of the verb in this passage. William Barclay said it this way. One author... Uh, William Barclay is the one who said it. If we are to give the heiress tense its full value here in Romans 5.12, and in this argument we must do so, the more precise meaning will be that sin and death entered the world because all men were guilty of one act of sin. In other words... Here's what the verse is saying. You and I, as descendants of Adam, are guilty of taking the fruit. You and I are guilty before God as if we had taken the fruit ourselves. We inherited that guilt from Adam. Now, let me demonstrate this to you from more of the passage. Verse 13. You can tell he's changed his mind a little bit. He starts saying, just as sin came into the world, you expect him to say, so something else has happened. Something else has come into the world perhaps. But he stops in mid-sentence. Just as sin came into the world, a sentence fragment, for sin indeed, in verse 13, was in the world before the law was given, before Moses, before the Ten Commandments, but sin was not counted for there is no law. What does that mean? Before the commandment, the Ten Commandments came. People didn't recognize their sin; it wasn't there explicitly in front of them, and so they didn't think about their sin. Perhaps they didn't recognize it. Now Paul told us it's written on their hearts. They were still in rebellion against God, but there wasn't the explicit revelation of God to expose that sin, and so it wasn't counted, wasn't recognized by them. Chuck Swindoll tells uh, an illustration. When he was a child, he had a a newspaper route, you know, throwing the newspapers on the people's front porch or front yard or in the bud puddles. And as as he would go on his route, he would ride his bicycle. And there was a couple of places where the unfortunate owner was on the corner of the street, and you could carve off a few seconds of the route by cutting across his yard. And in one spot, it happened so frequently by Chuck Swindoll and perhaps newspaper delivery boys before, had carved a little path of dirt by killing the grass. Now, some of you can imagine, you might not appreciate the newspaper boy cutting a path through your grass. And so eventually the owner of the yard stuck a sign up. The sign said, stay off the grass. Well, Chuck Swindoll, when he sees the sign, takes the same route he had always taken through the path. only thing was, on the other side of the sign was the owner of the yard who stopped him. And Sundahl says, he uh, gave me a piece of his mind. He instructed me (laughs) in the law. He said, you should have known better. Now before, the man overlooked the sin of going through his yard. It was still wrong. It was still thoughtless. It was still insensitive. It was still taking from someone what doesn't belong to you. But he overlooked it because there wasn't the explicit command. But once the sign was up, there was no overlooking it. When God gave the law through Moses, there's no overlooking the sin anymore. But here's the thing. Even if God overlooked the sin, even if the people didn't recognize their sins, verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. They were still under condemnation and they still died. Death was king. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Their sinning was in ignorance. His was... Disregard of God's command. And it didn't matter. All were condemned. Adam was like a type, a prototype, a a foreshadowing of the one who was to come. Now, this matters a lot. It, it, It actually is a bit offensive to our ears that you and I might be guilty before God because of what Adam did. We don't like that at all. We don't like that because we are Western in our mindset. We're Americans and we're individualist and we think everybody should stand on their own two feet. But that's not the way the world works. I, I worked for a company that made industrial heaters. And if the guy who was wiring up our heaters did a bad job, other people got laid off when people said, oh, you can't trust their heaters. The things we do affect other people. It's just the way the world is. And it's the way God sees the world too and you should know that uh, only western people since the renaissance think this way most of humanity has recognized a collective solidarity with their tribe, with their nation with their uh, chiefs and God says Adam represented you before God in the garden And therefore, as your representative, you participated in his guilt. You sinned in Adam. Now, let me belabor this point one last bit. We'll get verse 15. We're going to talk about the free gift in a second, but he says the free gift isn't like the trespass, Adam's trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, people died because of Adam's sin. Look at verse 16. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation to all of us. Verse 17, If because of one man's trespass, taking the fruit in the garden, death reigned through that one man, death to him, yes, but death to Adam all the way to Moses, all the way beyond Moses to Jesus, all the way beyond that to us. Death reigned because of one man's trespass. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19. For as one man's disobedience, as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. What I want you to see in this is that one man's sin, Adam, representing you, made us sinners. We tend to think of it like this. I commit a sin, therefore I have become a sinner. But the Bible says it differently. It says, you are a sinner, therefore you sin. It would be like this. I just voted, therefore I'm an American. No. You are an American, therefore you vote. You see... That's the the cause and effect, is that you are a sinner. You inherited that from Adam. And the reason you now sin is because you are related to Adam. The reason people set bombs in Boston is because they're related to Adam. The reason you find people who mistreat and misjudge and steal and hurt, the reason that you sin is because you're related to Adam and you've inherited from Him sin and guilt, and it, it shows up. We tend to think we need salvation because I do some sins, but that is not why you need salvation. You need salvation. You need rescue. You need grace. Not because you commit some sins, but because you are a sinner. It is who you are. We don't need a surface salvation that changes our behavior. We need a salvation that changes who we are. We must become new creatures, not simply better behaved descendants of Adam. And that's why we need Jesus. Adam brought sin, which led to condemnation, which led to death. Jesus brings obedience, leading to justification Leads to life. Let me show you. Verse 15. The free gift. It's not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. The trespass came, but a gift came to overwhelm it. Verse 16. The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. The result was judgment that brought condemnation. The free gift, following many trespasses, brought justification. Condemnation is the guilt before God. We stand condemned. Justification is its opposite. What Christ brought is not condemnation, but righteousness before God. Complete right standing. We go to the, the the judgment of God, and He says, "You pass. You're free. I have nothing against you." Adam's sin brought us condemnation. Jesus brought us justification. Its opposite. Verse seventeen: If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man in Jesus Christ. Here's what he said. You, by your birth, you're connected to Adam, and so you inherit sin and condemnation and death. And through faith, you become related. You become a, a descendant, as it were, of Jesus. You belong to Him. You're transferred from Adam to Jesus And when you get Jesus, you get obedience and justification and life. You see, the whole standing in front of God, you have, because you are born to the human race, you start in Adam. You start with Him as your representative. And you're guilty before God because in Him, you took the fruit too. It's the way God sees the world and if that offends us, it might be because our sense of justice is wrong, not God's. In Adam, we stand condemned. We stand ready to die. We stand sinners and guilty. But by faith, you get transferred from Adam to Jesus. And now Jesus is your representative to God. If you are trusting in Christ, you get Jesus' And In the garden, He prayed, not My will, but Yours be done, instead of taking the fruit. In the wilderness, instead of complaining and disobeying God, He said no to every temptation and was utterly righteous. And when the time came, He even obeyed to the point of death on a cross. And now the One who represents you before God is completely righteous and He is risen from the dead and you get everything He gets. You get His obedience before God. You get His justification before God. And you get His life before God. You have two options. In Adam, you get that by nature. You get Christ by faith. And in Him, you are completely justified. We need to see that the law could never save you. He says in verse 20 that a law came to increase the trespass. How does that work? How does the law increase trespass? It helps us see where our real needs are. If you want to think of it like this, imagine a dark room and you have a ladder in your hand. It's a six foot ladder. And you're told your only objective is to climb the ladder and touch the ceiling. And so you climb to the ladder and you reach up and you realize you can't touch it. So you're stretching as hard as you can thinking maybe I'm really close the law comes and it's like someone flips on the lights. And you see you're standing on top of a six-foot ladder in a 45-foot room. And you put your hand down and you know, this isn't going to work with me. See, the law came to help you see that in Adam, you can't do it. You're condemned already. But in Christ, you've already done it and you're completely justified before God. And the picture is this. Even if the law shows you how deep the sin has taken over, even if you discover how deeply sinful you really are and why you need a profound, deep rescuer, not just some surface change, you realize that in Christ, whatever He does overwhelms and overcomes that sinfulness and that guilt. Every bit of it. There's, uh, I've, I've seen the Dead Sea, and it's dead. There's actually chunks of salt that form around the outside because it's so full of salt that it's saturated. It's, it's uh, so thick with salt that when people get in it to swim, they float real high up, high enough that they could sit there and read a newspaper without getting the newspaper wet. It's, it's like thick water, and it's so salty, nothing can live in it. There's no fish, there's no no water life, there's nothing. And when the, the Jordan River pours fresh water into it, the fresh water becomes salty. And the more the Jordan River puts in, the saltier that water gets. Over and over again, it never gets better. There's a scene in the Old Testament in Ezekiel where water flows from the temple of God and it's fresh water and everywhere it goes it brings up life. And when it gets to the Dead Sea, It's so fresh and so full of life that even the Dead Sea becomes alive. It defies physics. It defies how we think about the world. But it's precisely how we should think about Jesus. That you and Adam, you you, you and I, we're already dead. We're already dead in Adam. But when Christ comes through faith, His life is so powerful that it overwhelms death that it overwhelms our condemnation and it overwhelms our guilt. And you and I, through faith, stand before God completely righteous, completely guilt-free, and completely and forever alive. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, I pray that You would take these truths of, of our guilt and our condemnation in Adam and help us despair of ever saving ourselves. I, I pray that You would help us See that Christ is our only salvation and He is enough and He is completely enough. And that if we are if in Christ through faith, we are alive. Alive forevermore. Help us bring our guilt to Him, to confess our sins to Him, and to know that He has made us righteous. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.